1: Millard Fillmore. What's this guy good at? Nobody likes him. He has terrible breath. Nobody wanted him. President Taylor. He gets a stomach ache. His doctors. Terrible doctors. Basically kill him. Now who's president? Millard Failure. That's what I call him. Millard Failure.
0: Senator Wolf. maybe you should tone down your rhetoric.
1: Tone down? It's a free country. It's like what I said about James Polk. This man is very low energy. They hold a mirror under his nose to make sure he's breathing. He's boring. He's a loser. People like me better. Why? I win. I get things done. I do more polking than polk. I can promise you that. Polk is not even the best at polking. Also, he might be a Catholic.
0: Senator Wolf, I'm just wondering if this is the right audience for your remarks. If you could just grant me a moment to... Grant?
1: What is Grant most famous for? Drinking. Grant is a binge drinker. He killed a horse when he rode it. Nice new horse. He's so drunk, he runs it into a ditch and he kills it. That's what he's going to do with this country. Elect me.
0: Well, Miss Vick, thank you so much for letting Senator Wolf address your first grade class.
1: What's wrong? Why are they all crying? You kids need to toughen up. The 20th century is coming. We're going to start winning again. Unless this country is overrun by the mixed-race mongrel children of Polk and Grant and Fillmore and sold it to the servitude of the Pope. Politics is nasty. Here's a show about that. It's a top show. And now, the secret love child of Franklin Pierce and Harriet Tubman, Colin McEnroe.
2: We may think that this is the nastiest political season, but history tells us a different story. First, you'll hear a segment we pre-taped yesterday with Gail Collins, op-ed columnist for The New York Times, and then in our second segment, we'll come back with Matthew Warshower and Michael Shudson, both historians, who will respond to Gail's comments and give some context to the nastiness that's alarming many of us today but really has stronger echoes in the far distant past. What can history tell us about what's happening right now? Gail Collins is, of course, op-ed a columnist for The New York Times. Everybody loves Gail Collins, except for Donald Trump. Uh, She's the author of six books, uh, including Scorpion Tongues, Gossip, Celebrity, and American Politics. That's what we're going to be talking about today. But I don't know how many people know this, but Gail's book about William Henry Harrison was the other property Lin-Manuel Miranda was considering before he decided (laughs) on Hamilton. It It might have been Harrison, right? I don't know how close you guys got with that. It would have been a shorter musical. It would have
3: been shorter, but so exciting.
2: Yeah, no, absolutely. So anyway, we're going to talk a little bit more about gossip, invective in politics. Good um,
3: day for it. Wow. A, a
2: good day for it. In fact, uh, as we're talking about this on a Tuesday afternoon on CNN, there's a, a crawl that says, Cruz, colon, Trump is a pathological liar and a narcissist. Um, <laughs> The good news, Gail, is that nobody's called anybody else a cannibal yet. Uh, Not yet. But the, but this actually has happened in, in American politics. I believe in eighteen sixty four. Yeah, Tell us yeah. about that.
3: Yeah, and this is part of my job in life to make people think. Well, it's always been worse, you know. <laughs> um, poor John Charles Frémont, who was the first Republican candidate for president, um, was a famous explorer, and um, his enemies spread around rumors that on one of his exploration trips he had been trapped with nothing to eat and had resorted to cannibalism in order to survive.
2: Part of his uh, – part, the, his slogan at one point was, you don't like your mother-in-law, just eat the noodles. <laughs> so it was a little bit his fault. But um, – <laughs> But, but this was also at a time where, for, where, first of all, campaigns were a little bit different. You kind of laid low and you stayed home. You weren't necessarily going all over the place. And then things got said about you. And that wasn't even the most damaging. I mean, there's cannibalism and then there's Catholicism. And that particular second vile calumny against Fremont was probably a little bit stickier for him.
3: That was worse. They were spreading the rumor that he was a Catholic. And, of course, back then, I mean, you know, there was enormous prejudice against Catholics on the part of the mostly Protestant election. And And um, he worried about that a lot. I don't have any record of him writing to any of his advisors saying, oh, my God, they say I'm a cannibal. He seemed to get past that perfectly well. But the other and that that goes on and on, whatever the sort of the thing of the moment is, there was a lot in many candidates. There was rumor spread that they had what they used to say, Negro blood, you mm-hmm. know, um, um, Warren Harding in particular, you know, that. Um, that was very big during his campaign. So whatever – or he was divorced or he you know, was secretly divorced or whatever the people are worried about at that moment in time tends to come up like that.
2: So you see this to a certain degree going in cycles. And so, Gail Collins, uh, I'm constrained to remind you that a long, long time ago, way back in the past, there were no Kardashians. i <laughs> That's a hard truth to wrap our minds around, but actually there is American history which predates them, which meant that there were fewer people to gossip about. There weren't that many famous people. So, you know, probably in the first, oh, what, maybe 60, 75, uh, maybe 100 years of American politics, politicians were kind of bold-faced names and maybe there weren't that many other names that people knew about. So you could argue there was sort of at least per capita more gossip about them.
3: Yeah, there was, I mean, back in the day, the the presumption about gossip was it was something you said over the fence to your neighbor. Um, What happened then was that you had people moving into the cities. They didn't have a fence anymore, they didn't have neighbors they actually knew, and there was really this desperate need for people to talk about that you all knew. And that was about the time that sports celebrities were invented. John L. Sullivan was the first great sports celebrity. And everybody talked about him as drinking and his women as carousing in the next fight and on and on and on. And then as time went on, often you would find that politicians would sneak in there and take up part of that space. You know, there was the most, I think to this day, the the most popular election in terms of voter participation was 1840 when my man William Henry Harrison ran. It was all about gossip and people going out, and they'd have parties, and they'd you know, have bonfires, and they'd roll huge balls from one town to the next for reasons that were never clear to me. But that was all really exciting, and they would sing songs about how Martin Van Buren wore a corset and dressed like a lady, or he had bushes in his front yard that he had trimmed to look like an Amazon's bosom, I mean, and all this stuff went on. It was just the way things were.
2: Listen, Donald Trump pays uh, landscapers a lot of money to trim bushes <laughs> so that they look like bosoms now, uh, and he's, he's damn proud of it. Yes, so to quote you, yeah, they jeered at Andrew, ja- at Andrew Jackson as a bully and an adulterer. They distributed leaflets listing how Henry Clay had broken each one of the Ten Commandments, spends his days at a gaming table and his nights in a brothel, and accused Daniel Webster of being a drunken boor who couldn't keep his hands off innocent female clerical workers. Abraham Lincoln was rumored in the South to be a secret Negro. Abraham Africanus the I, uh, and in the North to be a war profiteer. The press compared Andrew Johnson unfavorably to Caligula's horse and speculated that Grover Cleveland would turn the White House into a bordello. So this last one is one of your favorite ones. Uh, tell us about Grover Cleveland. I
3: love Grover. I mean, no one has appreciated the wonderfulness of Grover Cleveland, and I'm still broken hearted. There's never been an HBO you know, miniseries about Grover Cleveland's life because it was for this short you know, sort of fat, bald guy with little tiny eyes. I mean, he had a really active life. He was a bachelor when he was elected. And during the election, rumors started that he had fathered a child by this clerk in Buffalo who um, he had, in fact, taken the woman, became an alcoholic. He took her baby and got it adopted by a doctor in the town. And suddenly this became the great, great story. And Grover refused to talk about it. And he actually refused to talk about it because I'm convinced that the actual father of the child was his late law partner who had died, who had left a wife, and a very lovely teenage daughter who, after the election, became Mrs. Grover. But um, So anyway, he went through horrors, and the one story about, oh, he has this illegitimate child – expanded during the campaign until you had these newspapers writing about how he had been seen naked and covered with blood and bordellos, you know, staggering from one room to the next. It just went on and on and on.
2: So, was that the Ma Ma Where's My Pa gone, gone to the to White to the House? White ha, ha 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 ha. ha. That's yeah. Him, yeah. That was that campaign. I remember from your book that the wife, the one, the one wife you're talking about, President Cleveland's wife, whose name also was Melania. I don't know how many people actually realized that. Uh Franken- But, <laughs> but uh, no, it was Frances. Um, that she became kind of a figure of mystery, right? That there were near riots when she would appear in public?
3: Yeah, she was the first and um you know until very recently by historical standards uh only hot first lady. I mean she was very young when she got married and she just gotten out of college and she was very attractive and there were no controls in those days about your picture. You couldn't sue um a cookie company for putting the picture of the president's wife in front of their cookie ads. So she was all over the papers and various advertisements and people just went, they picked, they cut out the pictures and they put them on their walls and they started to riot whenever she showed up in public because everybody wanted to see her. And finally, uh, Cleveland had to stick her out in a farm just to protect her. And that's, you know, Cleveland park in Washington now is where Grover um stuck his poor wife in order to keep her from being trampled by the mobs of admirers she had.
2: Right. And this is sort of in a day when First Ladies were neither seen nor heard. She actually stayed out of the limelight as did uh, Mrs. Zachary Taylor, who you write, her pu- public profile was so low, she had to be depicted in the president's deathbed portrait with her head in her hands. None of the painters had any idea what she looked like. Yeah, so. she
3: never showed up on a cookie ad. <laughs> <of this. laughs>
2: I think the money wasn't right. That's the only reason, <laughs> though. I mean, if they, if they could have worked out the money, she would have done it. So something happened then. Yes, John L. Sullivan became fav- famous, vaudeville people became famous, radio, television, movies came along. There were lots of other people to talk about, and so maybe we gossiped and talked and said mean things and circulated uh, libelous rumors a little bit less about our politicians. Uh, there may have been sort of a fallow period. But somehow or other, it's kind of like we're back. I'm, or did it ever go away? Did it just kind of lie a little bit low in a feverish boil? or, or uh, did it, it
3: laid go- low. I think there was never a period in which there was never a candidate running for office who wasn't gossiped about as a drunkard or a womanizer or – a Catholic or something—I mean, it always something always came up. But I, I, I'm a big fan of the theory that a lot of it has to do with the, the the technology of the media. The the Grover period came about at a time when people had finally figured out how to publish papers very che- cheaply, and suddenly, you know, even in a smallish town, you would have three, four, five papers, and they didn't make any money from ads at that time. They made their money from political contracts basically so you were either a democratic or a republican paper and you just tried to slander the other side as much as possible in order to make your your sponsors happy and it became a crazy time for for this this sort of gossip and slander And then as things got more controlled, as things consolidated, and then you'd get into a period where even a big city only had one, two, three papers, and they wanted to sell ads, and they wanted to sell ads to everybody, not just Republicans or Democrats. And so things became very quiet and calm, because the big media, the TV stations, the newspapers didn't want to mess with embarrassing scandal. And then, of course, we're in an era now where you know you just the louder you can yell, the better because you get more tweets and more, more um, emails and more pokes and more whatevers, and so there's a huge, huge incentive right now for everybody to be as slanderous as humanly possible.
2: And, and uh, yeah, there always have been these kind of little explosive stories. Uh, we lived through 1972 where uh, George McGovern's running mate, Tom e- Eagleton. I'd forgotten this, gale, but, you know, before all of the stuff with Eagleton broke— Bob Novak ran this column quoting an unknown, unnamed Democratic senator saying that people don't know McGovern is for amnesty, abortion, and legalization of pot. Once Middle America, Catholic Middle America in particular, finds this out, he's dead. And that Novak later claimed that was Tom Eagleton who said that before he became <laughs> McGovern's running mate uh, and then bombed out because he had uh, uh, some mental illness in his background. So, I mean, that's an example of how digging something up about somebody, you know, even in 72, could turn a campaign around.
3: It's true. And George McGovern, who I, I talked to, you know, not you know, terribly, terribly long before he died, he really did believe that that was the moment that really made his campaign impossible. If you look back on the McGovern campaign, I think you could probably presume that no matter who his vice president was that was not the year it was going to work out for him but um it, and, and and if you look on in history people have an enormous ability to ignore this stuff if they don't need to believe in it for one reason or another I, and i think the clinton i mean the, the the clinton impeachment was the moment in history if there ever was one when it became clear that american people did not really care about the private lives of their elected officials as long as they were doing the stuff that they wanted to get done.
2: And, and I think also, you know, to your point about the media, the media reacted very, very powerfully to the kinds of scandals for which it was made. I mean, Thomas and Hill. We just went through the HBO confirmation uh, movie version of this, but Clarence Thomas and Anita Hill. You know, it coincided almost exactly with the rise of 24-hour cable news. There was something that you could uh, you could cover, and, and the same spilled over into Clinton. But it was almost as though the media would feed on that carcass for a while, and then vampires that we are, we would just sort of move on, and then you could get up and walk around. <laughs> <again>. <laughs> And
3: I have to say, that I was on the editorial board at the Times during the Clinton um, impeachment crisis. And every once in a while, we would just, I mean, we'd had to write about it every day, and people would just get so tired. And once in a while, my editor would turn to me and say, Can you do one of those Grover Cleveland things again? Divert us for the day.
2: Right. Uh, No, the Grover Cleveland oldies, they're always great. You know, you can always play them again. And people will get up and dance if you play them, too. So. So last question. I mean, obviously, you uh, uh, got into acrimonious exchanges, exchanges with Donald Trump way before it was fashionable. Uh, you were uh, on the leading edge of that. But this is a guy who's running in a different way. I mean, I, I, in some of his interviews, he kind of basically suggests that he has seduced and abandoned other people's wives. Like, he suggests this. You know?
3: Yeah. Yeah, well, if you listen to... Um poor Ted Cruz's pre-Indiana primary meltdown. I mean, he just kept saying, but he's already said this thing. He says he's had sexually transmitted diseases. He bragged (laughs) about it. I can't understand this. Why are you looking at this man? Um, But the truth is, no matter how – I mean, the the problem with Donald Trump is people are going to have to decide whether somebody who – changes his story not only on his sex life but also, you know, on what, you know, he's gonna do about nuclear weapons, is is somebody that you want in the White House. But if if people like his message and they think he's gonna do the stuff as a politician that they want him to do, I think they're remarkably if you look at these results in these states, in these states where people theoretically are very socially conservative. I mean it is not Gone unnoticed by them that this man has had three wives and um, that all the children were not born at the time he was married to their mothers and that they know this stuff, but they don't care because they think he's going to do stuff that they want.
2: Well, Gail Collins, uh, op-ed columnist for the New York Times, is so great to to talk to you again. Author of six books, including Scorpion Tongues, Gossip, Celebrity, and American Politics. If you buy the William Henry Harrison one, I will send you an MP3 of some songs that I've written that go with it. (laughs) uh, And you can just play them while you're reading it, sing them to yourselves. Thanks for being with me today.
3: Great to see you, Colin.
2: Goodbye, by Gail. So that was Gail Collins. Uh, in the next segment, we're going to come back. We're going to talk to Matt Warshauer, a professor of history at Central Connecticut State University, and Michael Shudson, historian and sociologist and professor of journalism at Columbia School of Journalism. We'll talk more about the history of campaign nastiness.
0: When the start hating.
2: And we're back. So life does move fast. I talked to Gail Collins yesterday at 2.30. Uh, since that time, of course, uh, Donald Trump has won Indiana. Uh, Ted Cruz has gotten out. Uh, John Kasich is in the process of getting out right now. Uh, so uh, this very fractious campaign. Well, you know, she alluded to uh, the Cruz meltdown yesterday. Uh, let's hear a quick clip of that before we, I go to our other two guests.
0: This morning, Donald Trump went on national television attacked my father. Donald Trump alleges that my dad was involved in assassinating JFK. This man is a pathological liar. He doesn't know the difference between truth and lies. He lies practically every word that comes out of his mouth. The man cannot tell the truth, but he combines it with being a narcissist. Donald Trump is a serial philanderer, and he boasts about it. This is not a secret, he's proud of being a serial philanderer. The man is utterly amoral. It, morality does not exist for him. Donald will betray his supporters on every issue. If you care about immigration, Donald is laughing at you. And he's telling the money deletes. elites, he doesn't believe what he's saying, he's not going to build a wall, that's what he told the New York Times. He will betray you on every issue across the board.
2: So, uh, how did our politics turn into this? Well, one answer is they kind of always were this, or at least some version of this, joining us in studio. Yes, Matt Warshauer, President of History at Central Connecticut State University, and the author of several books, uh, most recently, Inside Connecticut and the Civil War, Essays on One one State's Struggles, uh, and Michael Shudson, historian and sociologist, professor of journalism at Columbia uh, School of Journalism. He's the author of The Good Citizen, A History of American Civic Life, and most recently, The Rise of the Right to Know. It's like a whole other show we want to do with Michael Shudson. But so, um, Matt Warshower, uh, to that point, though, we started out pretty rancorous. And certainly by 1796 and 1800, uh, we had pretty bitterly contested, uh, no-holds-barred, gloves-off elections. Uh, Totally
4: and completely nasty. Uh, And I think it actually begins before then. Uh, and when I was talking to, uh, to, to Betsy, your producer, about the, you know, what we we're going to talk about with this show, I said, you know, one of the places you can go is right at, at the beginning of George Washington's uh, second administration because he writes the shortest inaugural address in American history. And it basically says, uh, thank you for this honor. Um, and if you think I did anything wrong, well, you know, please uh, impeach me. <laughs> and so it starts there. And so when you think about, you know, people have referred to the, the miracle in Philadelphia as the Constitution that it gets written. Um, it, it really is a miracle when you think about how divisive so many of these people are. And like you say, 1796 is as absolutely brutal. 1800 um, is even more so. And it's not just between Adams and Jefferson, but it's between Adams and Hamilton as well.
2: Um, Michael Shudson, uh you know, at that time also, we think of this this kind of strife as being the work of parties and partisanship. But one of the first conversations that the United States had was about whether parties were any good or whether we should have them. Uh, John Adams thought that we might wind up with parties that just constantly blocked one another rather than pursuing progress in any way. Imagine that idea. Right. Um,
5: yeah, the, the founders in general were against um, parties. They believed, as Madison put it, that there was mischief in faction and that uh, if you allowed um, factions uh, to dominate, you would destroy this. I mean, remember, there was no other Republican uh political system in the world when when this one began, and uh, they were rather um, pessimistic about its ability to survive, and factions would destroy it.
2: Um, and, and in some ways, though, Matt, what you have with no parties is the opportunity for everybody to hate everybody else without even the organizational structure of parties around that. As you say, uh, Adams and Hamilton were at each other's throats. Oh, yeah. I mean, Madison's hope— uh in
4: avoiding, he knew and he wrote in federal's number 10 he knew that it wasn't it was impossible to avoid factions they were always going to exist so the only hope was to control them and what madison hoped was that there wouldn't be you know permanent party collectives but rather people would vote their conscience on on various issues and there would so, sort of be constantly shifting factions and so the key was that people would be virtuous
2: mm. and well where are we in terms of virtue today? And where were we then? I mean, one of the things uh, we're sitting here in Connecticut, in, in Connecticut was the home of the so-called Connecticut libels, where federalists uh, were so full of spleen and invective against Jefferson that, that he did a very un-Jeffersonian thing, uh, which was to expand the pop, pop power of the federal court. Jeffersonian Republicans were supposed to not want to do stuff like that. But he went after them with these basically criminal libel laws, seditious libel laws. He went after uh, pastors, he went after uh, sort of political spokespeople, and he went after newspapers.
4: Well, I mean, there's a question of whether it's uh, Mm -hmm. un-Jeffersonian. There's been a few authors who have said, you know, Jefferson was never as strong as uh, somebody like Madison and, and some of the other founders on that idea, but Jefferson's concept was that the First Amendment didn't really apply to the states. And he actually, in his second inaugural and in a couple of other writings, encouraged uh, states to go after people and and prosecute them.
2: Yeah. So we uh, and the one against the, the Connecticut current actually went all the way to the Supreme Court although that was sort of on a technicality but I uh, mean these were criminal prosecutions of people basically for mouthing off. Oh, oh lots of people. The,
4: I mean this is what the the sedition act is about. Lots and lots of people are thrown in jail for I mean the the way that the sedition law goes is writing, uttering, publishing, speaking I, on and on. Anything bad about the President of the United States.
2: My favorite one, there was a, I think a pastor in Bethlehem, Connecticut who had um, called uh, a Je- a Jefferson a whore master and a whole bunch of other things, and a flander and stuff. It sounded like Ted Cruz, basically. Yeah, he had a spiel that was not unlike Ted Cruz. Uh, Jefferson, or the federal court, uh, uh, backed by Jefferson, went after him on seditious libel and as the case was about to convene, his lawyers, this pastor's lawyers, they wanted to subpoena like, Light Horse Harry Lee and all these sort of famous people from Virginia Um, and uh, because of an affair that Jefferson had had with a guy I think his name was Richard Walker something like that Uh, and it was going to be a hard one to dispute because there were letters in which Jefferson talked about it and and the federal courts dropped the whole thing because they couldn't stand the idea of calling as witnesses all these people up from Virginia who would have to testify to Jefferson's uh, infidelities. So um. So, um, Michael Schutzen, this isn't the colonial past that I was taught about in elementary school. I thought we were like this really nice country with pretty little New England greens and, and Virginia greens, too, I suppose. And, and and I mean, have we sort of sold ourselves a vision of the past that doesn't, in fact, comport with the reality of the past? Uh, yes, I think
5: think we do. There's a certain amount of founding father worship, and um, it's... You know they they also had feet of clay, uh, so um, not that they there weren't distinguished um, leaders there. I mean uh, I admire um, Madison and Jefferson, um, uh, despite the the truths that uh, uh, Professor Warshauer just uh, mentioned about Jefferson. Um, it, it was a different era. There was they took. Inequalities for granted that we no longer um, uh, believe in or or tolerate um uh between men and women between black and white between white men who own property and white men who don't own property um and you know the 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 sedition act um, that matt just spoke about that that became law seven years after the first amendment and somehow or other they Manage to um, you know believe two opposite things at the same time. It's Alice in Wonderland.
2: So, Matt Warshower, we, we did go through a period of relative peace uh, from uh, about 1812 to uh, the early 1820s, the so-called era of good yeah, feelings. Yeah. Um, but after that, things got really rough again. We've got two pretty tough elections in 1824 and, and 1828, which are, once again, rife with stories that makes anything Donald Trump has done so far look, well, at least like grade B as opposed to grade uh, A nastiness.
4: Oh, yeah, I agree. Uh, you know, the era of good feelings is really fascinating because it's the one time in American history where there is single-party rule. There's, there's only a Republican Party, and there's not that much nastiness until you get to the election of 1824 where the various candidates start competing against each other, the internal candidates, and then once the 24 election explodes into what we know as, as the corrupt bargain where it pits John Quincy Adams against Jackson, that, I mean, I always tell my students, look, the, the House of Representatives decides in February— on who's, who wins the 24 election, the, the day after Jackson and his followers start preparing for the election of 1828. And so I, I just I have to read two things. Yeah. On. So, so this is uh, John Quincy Adams. It's not specifically John Quincy Adams, but it's his people on Jackson. General Jackson's mother was a common prostitute brought to this country by the British soldiers. She afterward married a mulatto man with whom she had several children, of which number General Jackson is one. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, put it in context. Uh, Jackson's supporter accused Adams of having premarital sex with his wife, of being a pimp, mm-hmm. because he was a secretary to his father in, in Russia uh, when he was a young man, and he arranged for a, a virgin, an American virgin girl, to lay with the Tsar Alexander. Um, he he was accused of being a gambler because he brought a pool table into the White House. I mean, so all of these things are flying around, trying to just sort of dismantle one's opponent.
2: Um, Jackson, I think, actually believed or and said that political rhetoric of this type killed his wife. Right? I think. Uh, yeah, oh, he he believed that absolutely.
4: And in fact, you know, they they talked all about it. You and know, we don't have time to go into the whole history of his, of his marriage. But the fact is, you know, he did. Sort of run off with another man 's woman on the frontier, and he he never thought that it, he was going to run for president at that early time, so you know what would be the big deal uh, and When it came up in the elections, Jackson did everything he could to keep his wife from seeing this, and She was one day shopping on the streets of Nashville and saw some of these pamphlets on this stuff, and was so distraught by it that you know even after Jackson won, he, he was they were supposed to go to a ball in Nashville. The day, the night before they were going to leave for the inaugural and she has a heart attack that night and dies and Jackson never, ever forgives his his enemies. And he says, you know, the the biggest mistake he never he ever made was not shooting
2: Henry Clay and hanging John Calhoun. Mm -hmm. One thing we know is these make for great musicals. I've seen bloody, bloody Andrew Jackson. Yeah, I've seen it. Of, of course, Hamilton is, uh, is is taking over the world. So, Michael Shudson, another thing's happening right around this time, which is that politics in America is going from a spectator sport to a participator, participatory sport, right? You suddenly got kind of bigger political engines with the average person not on the sidelines watching these storied uh, elites and founding fathers thrash things out, but but – a lot of people are getting into the game.
5: That's what the parties, as they organize in the 1820s, 1830s, accomplished. They uh, involve a, a wider public in in the campaign itself. And the campaign becomes uh, a, a much more active, much more participatory uh, event. And in a way, it's the, it's the main event, um, uh, The the candidate's for president are relatively quiet. Um, that that doesn't change until uh, quite late in the 19th century. Um, they're they're not going from state to state uh, making campaign speeches. Uh, the, the local parties uh, are organizing events, um, often without campaign speeches. They're, they're parades and they're poll raisings and they're um, it, it it's a it's a different kind of party. They're barbecues. They're <laughs> all kinds of events that bring people out because they're fun. Um, it, it's not a case where one ideology is fighting a different ideology. It's uh, One historian puts it, this is the era of spectacular campaigns that don't become informative campaigns until quite late in the 19th century. It, it, it's a world of participation um, and And the um, newspapers, as another historian puts it, are aimed at people's feet, not at their heads. (laughs) Um, Get people out to march because, um, as Gail Collins said, these were partisan newspapers through and through. Uh, Get people out marching for their candidate. Um, Don't confuse them with um, information.
2: Yeah. In other words, working for newspapers, as you point out in in the book, it was just like that was one of – several possible political jobs. It wasn't seen as this separate uh, profession. It was one of the things that you could do if you were working in politics, and then the presidents would then, people who got elected, would just appoint a lot of people from newspapers. I mean, like, really, a lot of people from newspapers would then just get appointed to the government, right?
5: Yes. Um, you know, there's a whole list of, of uh, the people who ran customs houses and got ambassadorships and so on from, say, uh, Abraham Lincoln, um, you know, this crossed party, uh, the, the Honest Abe um, put the editors and managing editors of newspapers uh, who had supported him during the campaign into office.
2: Um, to that point, uh, Matt, so the, these um, publications we i mean we sort of think about fair and balanced and the whole question about whether the rise of Fox News and conservative talk radio represents this this new tilt of journalism but in fact journalism had to tilt somewhere towards the role of referee before it could ever do that before that these were all equally nasty partisan organs the Hartford current was a republican organ the Hartford times was a democratic organ yeah i mean uh, what
4: what michael is just talking about i mean we we call it patronage Mm-hmm. that 's what was going on, uh you know I did research a number of years ago and write, wrote an article about andrew jackson's death mm-hmm. and how newspapers treated it and how it represented the party ideology of the time and You can from the nineteenth century, if you know the history, you can literally pick up one of these newspapers, read. Two or three lines and go. Oh, that's a Democratic paper. Oh, mm. that's a Whig paper. But I do want to say one thing um, that Michael was uh, was addressing that you know these are all about you know parties and and not m- meaning political parties, but rather the hoopla of mm. parties. And there's two great things that occupy people's time in the 19th century: it's politics and religion mm. revivals. And um, so I do agree that it is about the hoopla and aiming at getting people out, but. It, it is still, to a certain extent, ideological and, and sticks to some political points of view because during this time period, they, newspapers would publish entire political speeches. Mm-hmm. And that's we, we would never do that today. That's I mean, Americans today can literally sit through a, a president's State of the Union address, let, let alone read an entire political speech that's published in a newspaper.
2: Although, Michael said to that point, uh, the newspapers were so partisan. I think this is in your book that, um, that it was necessary in order to accurately reconstruct the Lincoln-Douglas debates. It was necessary really to go to multiple sources because they didn't report them the same way. I mean, they didn't even report quote what was quote unquote verbatim uh was in fact cherry picked and 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 warped depending on on the focus of the newspaper
5: uh yes and in in the case of the uh, Lincoln Douglas debate um, Lincoln I assume this was the same with Douglas as well but Lincoln would sit down with the um editor uh of the republican newspapers and uh Edit his speech that he had just given uh, so that it sounded better in the newspaper. Uh, so the the one of the historians of Lincoln-Douglas debates uh, used as um, for his text used the Democratic papers. Um, sorry the, the the democratic papers to find out what lincoln actually said and the republican papers to find out what douglas actually said because of the other papers the, the paper of the same party would help um by editing and improving the speech of their own candidate
2: um I, you know matt I I, and I I don't know the answer to this question but one of the questions that i have is that you know At those times, I mean, obviously, passions were heightened, tensions were heightened. Uh, You've got things like the, you know, the fight over slavery, the onset of the Civil War, the aftermath of the Civil War. Uh, People had a lot on the line. I, I wonder, though, was there any more preservation of the notion that parties exist to sort of control exchanges of power, but not to obliterate one another or completely demonize one another. I mean, you know, we look at the situation now where Mitch McConnell won't allow uh, a vote on a Supreme Court nominee. I mean, it seems to be kind of in defiance of how we think the country's supposed to work and, and things like that. But it's clearly partisan part par- 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 I can't say it, Partisan uh, partisanship uh, ha- has trumped you know, any kind of consideration of the way the government works. Was that ever thus? Or were, was there a little bit more a marquee of Queensbury rules about what you could and couldn't do? Well, I think what both parties
4: realize in the 18, you know, one, once the party system comes to fruition, where you clearly have two parties, and, and Gail mentioned this before, the, the election of 1840, the hard the, the the Log, cabin and Hard Cider campaign, which is infamous with William Henry Harrison. Um, I think they have figured out um, that they need each other to a certain extent. You You have to have an opposition in order to maintain your own party. You have to have somebody to yell about and go against. And one of the things that happens in the 1850s and allows the Republican Party to develop— I mean, you have in the mid-19th century, you have Democrats versus Whigs, and they're really centered around— um, economics, but also the the very image of Andrew Jackson. You either love him and follow him, or you hate his guts. And when Jackson goes off the stage, and then there's another a number of other things that start to change with economics in in the um, late 1840s, early 1850s, the Whig Party just comes to completely disintegrate,
2: and it causes huge problems within the Democratic Party as well. Mm. Um you know uh Michael Shipton we we just back to those Lincoln Douglas de- debates uh, in 1860 um I have them enshrined in my mind as this notion of uh, a time where there were these really substantive debates where people kind of talked about the issues and, and these two men were eloquent and thoughtful and the debates were meaty and long. Um, but, I mean, they weren't immune from this kind of thing either. These were very rancorous debates and rancorous times. And when they weren't on stage, they were just saying horrible stuff about one another. Uh,
5: they, and, and on stage, um, uh, during those debates, um Lincoln was uh, attacking Douglas for having conspired with a handful of others to expand slavery in the country um and in at least one of the debates Lincoln admits uh that he doesn't actually have any evidence for that but he continues with the the accusation of this this uh, grand uh conspiracy to expand slavery Douglas um, in return, um, mocks Lincoln for uh, his opposition to the Mexican War uh, 15 years earlier, um, and attacks Lincoln as part of a conspiracy among a set of Illinois Republicans to gain the Senate seat. Um, Douglas attacks Lincoln as an abolitionist, um, which, of course, for many most people at the time was a dirty word. Um, and Lincoln kept denying that he was what douglas called him a black republican
2: um uh, Offstage, uh, Douglas said things uh, about Lincoln that sound very much like Marco Rubio and Trump going back and forth. A uh, horrid looking wretch, sooty and scoundrelly in aspect, a cross between the nutmeg dealer, the horse swapper, and the nightman. Lincoln is the leanest, lankest, most ungainly mass of legs and arms and hatchet face ever strung on a single frame. So you think talking about people's hand size is bad. Uh, all right, we're going to take a quick break. We'll come back uh, with more of Matt, more of Michael after this.
1: Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan, who's known to be a fusty lugs and a goober mouch. And me, Kyone Wolf, Greg Hill, that fop doodle and muck spout appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR call-in. Bill Curry as a vile mumble crust and snout band. For show pages, articles, and proof that the Here and Now staff is a pack of quiz bees and saddle geese, go to our website, wnpr.org slash Colin. On tomorrow's show, the parallel narratives on Right Wing Radio. And now... Back to
2: Colin. Yeah, this is a whole week we're doing of, of uh, political considerations. Uh, today we're uh, looking into the past uh, and looking at how uh, elections were every bit as nasty as you worry that they are or will be today. Uh, tomorrow's show, there's a whole other conversation that, for the most part, you're not hearing. Uh, and it's uh, it takes very different forms. So we're going to talk about that. Uh, if you're listening to public radio, chances are you don't listen to much uh, conservative talk radio. So we'll, we'll tell you uh, how it's being looked at through that prism or those prisms. But right now, uh, we're looking at history, and we're talking about how history informs the presence, present. Uh, joining us is Matt Warshauer. He is professor of history at Central Connecticut State University uh, and uh, the author most recently of Inside Connecticut and the Civil War, Essays on One State's Struggles. Michael Shudson is with us, historian and sociologist uh, with the uh, Columbia School of Journalism. He's an author of The Good Citizen, The History of American Civic Life, and most recently, the rise of the right to know. So, Michael Schutzen, you know, one of the things that you write about in The Good Citizen, too, is even our notion of voting uh, probably is a little bit gilded, that certainly in the late 19th century, voting was looked on as part of this power struggle that was going on, That and, and that, that uh, violence at the polls was not uncommon, drawn pistols were not uncommon, that sort of like, who was going to win this thing w- was not just a contest of debates or ideas, but of muscle.
5: Uh, Yes, that's true. Um, And uh, even when the um, elections were nonviolent, they were um, full of something that could produce violence, which was alcohol. Mm -hmm. um, And people would be rewarded for their votes um, at the local Democratic Party or Republican Party uh, favorite watering hole. Uh, And it was easy to know um, who voted which way until the 1890s because there was no state prepared ballot there was the, the um, ticket that you put into the ballot box uh, came from a party worker um, the party worker stood outside the polling place and you went to the worker from your party you took the piece of paper that had on it only listed the names of that party's candidates and you didn't have to mark it. You just placed it in the ballot box. So the whole act of voting had a rather different flavor uh, in the 19th century. It was the act of going over to the party worker and taking that ticket that he handed you was an act of affiliating with the party. It was not quite in the same way it became later an intellectual or rational or um, emotive choice among parties. It was... uh, Showing, uh, demonstrating uh, your allegiance to one party was not really a secret ballot.
2: You know, um, Matt Warshauer. one of the things that Michael writes about is the concept of the informed citizen. This is this cherished ideal that we have that ultimately we're going to have. I mean, our country is founded on these Lockean ideals that people are going to be smart enough to control their own destiny, to be able to make good decisions based on ideas, based on their own apprehension of what the truth is. So I I don't know. I I don't want to leave everybody hopelessly cynical about our entire history or or even our present. I mean, to what degree... Despite everything that we've said here today, do we can we still be said to say to to have elections that are about ideas and perhaps even about ideals?
4: I I think elections are still about ideals. I think there's distinct differences between what Republicans uh, are espousing today and and what Democrats. I mean, I, I think the Bernie Sanders movement is all about uh, ideals. Some people say that it's not enough specifics, but it is about ideals. And you know you're right when you when you say the founders always were concerned that an educated citizen mattered. I mean, you can look at virtually any inaugural address, and they talk about that. And you know, I I actually really believe that it's one of the reasons that I've you know been devoted to you know histories, ed, history education, and people understanding the humanities, and and you know, so I do think it's about ideals. And I I, I agree with you. I don't want to leave everybody thinking that you know it's always been this way. So it doesn't really matter. It does matter. It really does matter. I don't know. You know, I'm not thrilled that this is the way that politics works. I understand it is. Um, But uh, and we always think we always look back longingly. And this is one of the things that Michael uh, addresses in his book. We're always sort of looking back longingly towards a better age, that it was better at some other time. And but, you know, you do kind of feel that things
2: right now are not so great. <laughs> and are they that much worse than in the past? And, and, Michael, you know, one thing that we talk about a lot is civility or a lack of civility. And we certainly see in the ways that Matt is saying right now about things being not so great, a lack of civility. Uh, on the other hand, a, a total commitment to civility is seems as though it's kind of a commitment to things not changing as well. I mean, maybe the question is who... At whom do you direct your incivility um, that but ultimately that when we've had change in this country uh, important meaningful desirable change um rule breaking has gone along with it
5: uh, y- yes I, I guess I'd say two things here y- yes so, um sometimes um uh, although in general um i, I think people should be- c- civil um, sometimes uh expressing things uncivilly becomes um, necessary. I I would hope more than is the case that people would resort to incivility rarely uh, rather than routinely. Uh, And this campaign has been disappointing that way to me. But, um, But... sometimes, say, in the civil rights movement, uh, perhaps even more so in uh, the gay liberation movement, sometimes in the women's movement, people had to uh, or felt they had to, and I think were justified in saying, I I need to get your attention, uh, and I'm going to have to do something a little out of the ordinary, and you may even find it uh, rude uh, to do that. Uh, And sometimes that has been a real breakthrough and the rules of civility um can be quite um they can be a straitjacket i i think one of the big differences um that makes this a better era the last um since the 1960s is that the, the press became uh the press that had become professionalized not like the 19th century partisan press had also become very tame um and Uh, did not have a real tradition of investigative reporting that has been stronger since the 1960s than at any earlier time in American history. So there's a kind of set of arbiters in the – or at least would be arbiters um, um, uh, in the press to arbitrate between various claims of the candidates.
2: Um, Matt Warshaw, we got literally thirty seconds left, but I'm assuming if people want to look at a historical model for understanding the rise of Donald Trump, it really is Andrew Jackson. Uh, I think there's a yeah, there's a
4: good argument there, and I've read a lot of the articles about that. Um, you know, I, I think they also
2: have a lot of big differences too. But yeah, yeah, I, I agree with that. All right, Matt Warshaw and Michael Shudson and Gail Collins. Thanks to all three of you. Couldn't have asked for three better, more perfect panelists to talk about this. Tomorrow we're going in an even, well, no, I won't even characterize it. We're going to look at right-wing radio or conservative radio.
1: Cruz calls it quits, huh? That ragabrash, that lover-wart, that yaldson, that fop doodle.
0: Senator Wolf, I'm not sure I understand your old English insults.
1: Me neither. I think I might have just asked his mother out on a date. It's gonna be a terrific date, best date of her life.